Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to John Dean about the good glow, charity, and the symbolic power of doing good. So welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dave. Um, This is an incredibly well-timed book, partially because of, um, you know, if I might say, the kind of the need for charity in the current uh, context, and we'll unpack um, what that means, but also actually because of a series of crises that are facing, uh, I think, certainly the charity sector in, in the UK, but also actually there are a load of other examples internationally where a combination of kind of things like funding, um, maybe we'd call it the kind of the, the politics of, of charity. And then as the book gets into questions of kind of effectiveness, um, come into the fore for lots of charitable organizations uh, and i guess the place to start is to understand why we needed a kind of a, a sociology of charity and, and what got you thinking about um writing a book that gives a sociological perspective um, on charity one of the main reasons is that very few sociologists study charity overtly and i've always found that a little bit strange Charities are, A, incredibly historic and important bodies that have got a a history and an impact and a role in the welfare state that's incredibly important and has got more important over the last 50 years. And that's interesting. And those are things that sociologists should be interested in. But more so, the work of charities to support homeless people, to provide food uh, in food banks, to provide arts organisations and sports and leisure facilities, to campaign for environmental or social justice, are all around us and are things that sociologists are incredibly involved in. If you're doing an interview-based project and you want to speak to experts, you'll often go and speak to people who work for charities, uh, people who work for Amnesty International or Uh, similar movements. Yet for some reason, their work as charity actors, their work as people who work for charities, their work as people who have to fundraise and advertise and work with donors and work with beneficiaries often gets left out of sociological analysis. There's a couple of obvious recent examples, Lindsay McGooey's work, uh, Monica Krauss's work, for example, have both done really deep dives into the international development sector from a sociological perspective. And people like Dave Elder Vass uh, uh, and Kieran Healy have looked at gift giving from a sociological perspective. But in general, when I go to the British Sociological Association conference, no one's talking about charity or the voluntary sector. And I thought that that was a gap worth filling. What... Um... Would they be talking about if they were t- talking about uh, charity? What, what actually what actually is charity? It's one of those words. It struck me uh, reading the book that like everybody knows what it is, but if someone was like, "So what is it then?" You might struggle to give um, you know a, a sort of well developed and, and accurate um, answer, really. And it's interesting to 
to flag up this question of well, what is charity? Mm. So charity comes from the uh, old English uh, caritas, uh, which means sort of Christian love of one's fellows. So we think of charity in that quite amorphous concept of when we're being charitable to each other. We're actually showing other people love when we're giving them a, t- a gift of time or money. Uh, we're actually showing them some sort of devotion, some sort of uh, connection. So you've got that sort of quite amorphous, un imprecise element of charity and then you've got charities bodies that are set up regulated by the charity commission in england that are um set up in order to try and provide social benefit for other people that don't try and make a profit so you've got the both the organizations that um, exist in this um civil society sphere that are trying to do good works generally although there's a little debate that Obviously, all of them are doing good works and some of them can be quite uh, politicised and partial. But you've also got this sort of more I am charitable to you, you are charitable to me, doing people favours, being neighbourly, being kind to each other. The pandemic has shown an enormous amount of what we might call informal charity or informal volunteering through the role of WhatsApp groups on roads and that sort of um, neighbourliness and connection that we've needed to get through. So charity covers that full gamut, really, of, of, of human experience that sits outside of the public sector and the private sector. Um, and yet again, it's it's something that is often left to um, non-profit uh, study scholars, which often are coming from either business studies or from sometimes anthropology or from public administration in the United States. Another way of thinking about, like, what is charity is with a bit of an example. And um, it's funny, you know, I, I mentioned the kind of the timeliness of the book. Um, and one of, the, one of the examples you give in the front of the book is, is the Gates Foundation, which obviously this week is incredibly timely. Um, and I think they're, they're really interesting because um, both as a, you know, as an organization, they're fascinating, but also because they're one of the few, I suppose, examples of where there's been sociological analysis uh, of a charity and also they kind of set up actually lots of of different themes that the book gets into so what's the gates foundation why does it matter why was it um, kind of useful for the book so the gates foundation is if you like the giving vehicle of um, bill and melinda gates the founder of microsoft and his uh, now uh, former wife as their divorce was announced uh, this week um, and warren buffett the uh, billionaire investor um, out of nebraska so in again this is an interesting difference between the uk and the us the us has far more established foundations often a cynic would say because of their more generous tax regime for Uh, those who uh, give their money away. But let's ignore that for a second. Um, The foundations exist uh, for wealthy individuals to direct their philanthropy, to um, oversee at arm's length uh, the giving of millions, or in the case of the Gates Foundation, billions of dollars. And the Gateses are focused very much on um, international health, uh, vaccines, um, agricultural development, um, and education. And why they're a really interesting example is because Gates's original worth when he set it up was about 90 billion and uh, he's now worth about 140 billion. 
Um, and they've invested, I think, over twenty-two billion so far in the Gates Foundation. Twenty-two billion pounds buys a lot of no questions. It buys a lot of goodwill. It buys a lot of lack of critique, if you will. And various authors, Lindsay McGooey, Nicole Ashoff, have criticised this sociologically, saying there's something incredibly problematic about someone with no democratic accountability. Um, on their own whims of things that they're interested in, being able to direct 100% of the WHO's um, vaccine budget, for instance. And we've seen this week about the Gates's view on patent protection and how that's caused various political problems and social problems to do with uh, the um, vaccination programme in India, for instance. And so there's been a huge pushback Uh, in recent years against wealthy philanthropists being able to use their wealth as a way to circumnavigate democratic norms and be able to push public uh, debate and public policy in certain directions. Now, to a certain extent, that that can be a useful thing. There's a long history of um, wealthy donors being able to cut through government bureaucracy, being able to cut through um, stymied thinking and being able to innovate. Yet when it comes to um, matters of incredible public policy like health or education, there's been a lot of criticism that the Gates's money has um, been uh, has meant that they've experimented basically with people's lives. And when it hasn't worked, they can go, oh, well, doesn't matter, because those people who are inconvenienced as a result can't vote them out of office in any way. It's what the... Um, uh, commentator Anand Giridharadas in his book Winners Take All has called reputation laundering, that wealthy people to a certain extent have used their um, philanthropy as a way to smooth off their public media images. Oh, he can't be a bad guy. He's given away billions of dollars, even if that billions of dollars only equals 5%, 2%, 1% of their income. That's, I suppose, the kind of territory that sociology tends to be kind of comfortable on is this you know, you know kind of um critical intervention to labor the unequal power relationships and you know kind of problematize the things that seem um reasonable or you know kind of socially good but actually you know the, the book almost kind of says well if that's where sociology has been there's a whole load of other stuff around uh, charity and, and particularly the act of giving that we need to know more about. And one of the things that was quite striking was the front end of the book is, is essentially a kind of a, an analysis of everyday forms of, of charity, both um, in terms of charitable organisations, but also in terms of how people understand charity and their you know, motivations, their behaviours. And, and I suppose there's maybe two routes to, to kind of think through that. One is a question um, about how people behave towards and, and around and think about charities. But the other thing is about giving. And maybe we'll do, do those in turn. So the first thing is, why do people give to charity? Um, again, this sounds like such a kind of a, a really straightforward question, but actually there are all kinds of different and complex motives. So the classic reasons that people give for giving to charity are because they're, they believe in a cause or they think supporting charities or charities in general is a good thing to do, or it's about helping someone you know. 
So, for example, if your friend asks you to sponsor them in doing the marathon, for instance, you think, well, I trust this person, I like this person, I want to support and invest in this person. This cause that they believe in is clearly very important to them because they're running a marathon to support it. So therefore, yes, I'm going to invest in my in my friend. I'm going to do a good a good deed. Um, and, and people maybe have used a charity service in the past. You find people get very committed to causes particularly medical charities that might have supported their parents, for instance, uh, Macmillan Cancer Care or the British Heart Foundation or something. So you find all of those sort of reasons that people give to charity and they're very common. And one doesn't want, the whole point of this book is not to criticise those motivations for just for the sake of it. it. It's really to sort of interrogate what people are saying when they give those um, answers. Generally, people don't say that they thought they'd get something in return for their charitable donation. Um, generally, and I don't think that's unsurprising. Uh, generally, people wouldn't want to admit that they were doing something charitable in order to uh, get something back, some sort of um, either explicit benefit or an implicit one, like being seen as a more pro-social individual, so being praised for um, being charitable. Um, but we do find, and we do find that generally people who give to charity are more likely to be happy than people who don't. We find people who volunteer are less likely to be lonely and more likely to be healthier. And so there's this um, sort of double uh, relationship between uh, why people give and, and what they get out of it. But there's also lots of examples about people uh, giving to charity, um, either to get something for themselves, the Donald Trump. J. Trump Foundation, um, not to take his name in vain, um, has been shown by lots of people to basically have been a promotional vehicle for the Trump family that didn't really ever give out of Trump's own money. It was more about trying to invest other donors who'd, who'd, who'd donated to the foundation. And it was more used almost as a, as a, as a media vehicle. And, the, and I, I talk about in quite horrible detail some of the ways in which Trump has abused charity in order to look like the most beneficent man of, of New York City. Um, but we also find that social pressure can be a reason why people um, give to charity. I, I speak to a lot of uh, young people in the book about some of the pressures that social media brings for them having to support their friends' charities. The, um, the, off, the online world of um, uh, please share this post or, or please sponsor me doing this um, becomes sort of offline pressure and difficulty and awkward social relations uh, where you feel like you have to support this cause because people are checking up on what you're liking on social media and they're worried that people might be using their social media um, as a way of presenting themselves in a certain light. So you end up with very quite um, obvious but then quite um, discreet and incidental reasons why people get involved with charity as what's called um, humble bragging sometimes sort of. Uh, showing off in a in a humble way about all the good things you're doing. Hashtag humble brag is <laughs> is a really good segue into um, some of the, uh, I guess, kind of digital field work um, that you did. And it's funny in a way that, again, you know, the, the kind of the everyday um, questions of kind of social pressure or, um, you know, motivations around supporting charities that have, um, you've had involvement with, and, and particularly we see this, as you mentioned, in the health um, sector. 
it's complemented by, I guess, a kind of a, a social phenomenon of people getting heavily involved in um, almost mass movements that are often, and correct me if I'm wrong, you, you know, less about the um, the charity itself and more about uh, the social movement or the social moment. And, and you talk about the Ice Bucket Challenge, but, you know, um, if you were writing the book now, I'm sure... Um, Sir Tom, uh, to give a British example, would, uh, would would feature quite heavily. And this was a fascinating route in, into, I guess, kind of what the digital means for charities, both in terms of how, in, in the book's case, younger people, um, but people, you know, kind of respond online, but also what digital means for charities as well. It'd be, be interesting to hear, I guess, what the digital moment means in terms of organisations and in terms of people. So let's start with the Ice Bucket Challenge. Um, uh, I think around 2014, ALS, um, which is a motor neurone disease uh, charity, set up the Ice Bucket Challenge, where it challenged people to tip a bucket of water over their heads, uh, nominate two other people to do it, and in the process, donate $5 um, to the ALS cause. And it was hugely successful. It, it, It was a tidal wave of of um, content on social media. Lots of celebrities got involved, including uh, Gates and Zuckerberg and also Cristiano Ronaldo and others. And it raised, I think, $120 million for ALS. It was incredibly impactful and everyone was aware that this ice bucket thing was happening. Then what was interesting was as it was happening, it came a lot of what you might call ice bucket shaming online. People were going, oh, you've tipped the ice bucket over yourself, but you haven't given anything to the charity. So it ended up that people were having to share the screenshot on their Facebook or Twitter page to prove that they had had done the donation. Um, And whereas actually in those sort of things, in those sort of viral moments, it's more almost important that it just keeps sharing and spreading rather than everybody gives. And $120 million was more than ALS had raised in, I think, the previous 10 years. It was an extraordinary amount of money. What was interesting when I started talking about the Ice Bucket Challenge is that people uh, from charities would come up to me at conferences and go, that was really interesting, but please tell us what the next Ice Bucket Challenge is going to be because we really need it, because we're really struggling for fundraising. And you see on Twitter, for example, lots of new charity campaigns where they've really tried to think of something that could grab the moment and get uh, people sharing their cause and involved. And it's got five retweets and three likes or something, and these things don't kick off. And the problem with digital is that it, it brings out several examples of people thinking oh my god this is an incredible tool we could raise a hundred million we could really set our fundraising uh, targets uh, to the wall we could change so many people's lives if we were able to get the moment but you can't predict what is going to be successful and what isn't you don't know what the next no makeup selfie or ice bucket challenge is and yet so you end up spending a lot of time trying to predict it There's a lot of reports about how charities are dealing with the move to digital. Generally, large charities will have now social media teams and will have um, their marketing teams will be well versed in in digital media and and how to do these things. And, you know, the largest charities are run very much like uh, large businesses, for instance, and, and they're aware of those currents and trends and able to pay for consultants to do that work to get them up to scratch but because the vast majority of charities for example in the uk are small over 90 percent of charities have no paid staff in the uk 
actually most charities therefore which are local volunteer run and small in terms of how much they bring in are are really struggling charity trustees are overwhelmingly older people they don't have necessarily the digital literacy that they that they need and uh, actually that digital divide is probably going to increase the dominance of the large charities um, to the uh, supplication of, of the small ones and making sure that the sector understands these currents that is is really important i think as a sociologist studying the charity sector you often feel that actually the charity sector sometimes thinks that culture and society almost don't matter as much to sort of the things that are going on in society have some bearing on the charity sector yet because there's a feeling that the sector is just this nice bubble of nice people off to one side it can sort of get through just doing what it's always done which unfortunately isn't the case i mean an example of not nice bubbles or at least um you know uh, problematic bubbles is um really the, the kind of centerpiece of the second half of the book, which is the story of, of Kids Company. And that, I think, brings together analysis of the sort of limits of public policy, uh, both as, you know, as kind of engagement and um, as a kind of, you know, campaigning adversary for charities. It shows us, you know, the kind of importance of the sociology rather than just an individualistic account. And it tells us something about the limits of particular kinds of charity leadership. So, um what was Kids Company? What was the kind of uh, sociological story to that? And how does it bring together lots of the, the themes that are in the book? So Kids Company was a British youth charity, mostly focused in South London, but with small outposts in Liverpool and Bristol, uh, that was founded um, by a uh, Iranian national called Camilla Batmangelish, who had a background in child uh, psychotherapy and counselling. Um, in the year 2000, and yet collapsed in the year 2015. And Kids Company had grown from small origins to be one of the big players, really, in British youth policy. And Batman Gellish was a a noted political figure. She was friendly with um, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair and David Cameron and Prince Charles and, and well embedded in various celebrity circles. And Kids Company brought in a lot of money um, through private philanthropy and, and, and rich donors, but also brought in a lot of government money, I think £46 million from central government between 2000 and 2015, which was, I think, something like a, f- a fifth of the Department for Education's discretionary budget at one point. So it, it got far more money than would be expected for a charity that had a very specific South London focus, really. And Kids Company's model was to any child in need that came to them for help, they would help. So it it automatically meant that it had always as much client as it had funding. So it was always straining at the leash in terms of how much money it had and how many reserves it had. In 2015, it collapsed um, through various reasons, um, the cabinet office started to say, actually, we're not comfortable giving you any more money. And there were various um, uh, allegations of criminal activity there, including um, sexual assault, although that was that never got taken to court. What happened when the kids company collapsed was it led to a big crisis in the charity sector in the UK about how well charities are managed Um, how well 
trustee boards can keep track of dominant uh, chief executives like Batman Gelish and how we fund child protection. A lot of the kids that Kids Company were looking after or supporting or having a key worker support were incredibly damaged and poverty stricken and in incredibly bad ways. The problem was that a lot of the kids, the kids company was supporting, it turned out weren't in that situation. There were claims that they were helping a 30 year old PhD student and that uh, kids would be bought really, really expensive trainers by the charity and, and it wasn't using its money well. Sociologically, Batman Gelish had incredible charisma from a Weberian perspective. She was able to use her charisma to bring in a lot of money and um, ingratiate herself with uh, political leaders and the royal family and and so on. As Weber says of um, charisma, these characteristics are not accessible to the ordinary person, but are regarded as of divine origin or exemplary um, on the basis that the individual concerned is seen as a leader. But there's something quite dark about um, how people like Eisenstadt and Turner talk about Weber's charisma, how it can really lead to damage uh, through egotistical actions. Batman Gelish didn't really have a have a have a control over what the charity was doing. Um, and it led to uh, a collapse and it led to the sector being asked incredibly awkward questions. A lot of people across the charity sector who I spoke to for the book felt that she'd done some damage to the wider sector because um, all charities get tarnished with the same brush. Charities are very rarely in the media. They're very rarely in Parliament. They're very rarely discussed on the 10 o'clock news. They're very rarely on Newsnight, for instance. And yet Kids Company was everywhere. It was a it was a summer of very little news and, and Kids Company was the only story in town. And so suddenly the entire charity sector found itself under attack, just as it did during the um, Oxfam uh, Haiti sexual abuse scandal, which continues to lead to problems to this day. So you have this issue that incredibly passionate, incredibly caring, incredibly dominant people take control of a social welfare issue, and it becomes that that's the way that we tackle that in this country. And yet when it collapses, everyone goes, oh, well, it was down to individual reasons why it collapsed. It was down to Batman Gelish. But we've still got massive problems of child protection. The child poverty rate in this country has gone through the roof. And yet we now have probably less of a desire to do anything about it because of the um, the, the kids' company story being a lesson for people um, not wanting to get involved. You mentioned, um, I guess, what, what would be the effectiveness of their activity as a charity. You know, were they targeting the right individuals, the right communities, you know, was the money being well spent? And that is, I, I guess, the kind of payoff to the book, both examining a new phenomenon or at least a newish phenomenon called effective altruism, but also thinking through how we might be critical of demands that charities, you know, be, to quote, you know, sort of effective or, or efficient. And I'm interested um, to, to move, I guess, from the kids' company story where there is definitely a you know um, a critique around its effectiveness and, and the use of money to maybe rethinking this whole idea about what is effective and, and i guess the the kind of the question of well, what is charity for anyway as mm-hmm. well which is where the book closes 
So the effective altruism movement has grown up, as you say, over the last decade, really, um, uh, pushed by the philosopher Peter Singer. Um, and the effective altruism movement basically argues that if you're giving, if you've got spare money, and effectively, if you give to charity, you are you do have some spare money, money that you can afford to give away without um, particularly affecting your quality of life. You should be giving that money to the most effective cause you can. And Singer and Will McCaskill and others argue that that most effective cause is saving lives, generally in the global south uh, or um, the developing world. And each life to save costs about two to two and a half thousand dollars. So therefore, if, if you are able to give two and a half thousand dollars to something, whether that's a museum or an art gallery or a uh, environmental charity, that is an incredibly ineffective use of your money. And you should be giving it where it will do the most good. The most good thing you can do in the world is save a life. So therefore, all our money should be directed to those charities that are the most effective. And we now have organisations like GiveWell, the website, which monitors charities that are doing uh, randomised control trials and checking that they are spending their money the most effective. Uh, Lee, and uh, we find generally that anti-malaria charities, charities that uh, try and tackle malaria, actually have the highest rate of success, if you will, in terms of saving uh, children's lives. And that's maybe where we should be all giving our money rather than trying to support our local church, for instance, or our local other religious organisation or our local sports uh, charities or arts charities and so on. And, and on first reading, you think that's a very, that's a very clear philosophical argument. Um, I can absolutely understand why if you think that this is the most important cause, all of our money should be directed to that cause, because the suffering that those children must be going through must be the worst thing that any of us can think of. So let's try and do something about it. The problem is, I think, with the effective altruist movement is that it sort of ignores that people aren't robots. Generally, the people most associated with the effective altruism movement are generally richer, generally more secure people. And yet it's difficult to connect to things that are half the world away. And obviously we have a very um, highly resourced and lots of people donate to the international development sector and give lots of money to Comic Relief and um, uh, Save the Children and other organisations. But in general, people care about the things that are close to them. And I don't think it's an unreasonable thing for people to want to care about things that they personally care about. I understand that when I walk down the street and maybe give a quid to a homeless uh, person on the street, that that is not the most effective use of my money. But at that moment, the emotion, the, the, the need that I can see right in front of me feels like an effective thing I can do with that quid. Just as if I try and save a local arts charity in Sheffield, or if I give some money to the art gallery that I like and maybe future children of mine will like and that I can see that do a lot of, of good stuff in terms of educating um, people across Sheffield, I understand that that might not be effective but I'm human. I'm, I'm a messy bundle of emotions and feelings. And so I think the effective altruism movement's a desire to try and strip reality out of charitable giving is a, is a little bit simple. Um, also, the language that they use sometimes, I mean, there's, a, there's a jokey phrase about dead child currency, 
that um well think about if you buy that new table that's that costs one dead child do you really need that table and so i i, I do get the point about um charities being effective and, and charities classically have not always been very good at tracking their impact for instance and tracking their effectiveness um but i thought that the effective altruism movement sort of ignores the sort of reality of charitable giving which is what um the good glow is is trying to really unpick the sort of lived reality and, and socialized um life of of giving i mean the, the book um does a lot actually to kind of bring back uh, reality into our understanding of, of charities and it ranges i mean there's loads of stuff in the book we could have talked about the stuff around kind of culture war stuff around um how people display their um giving practices and um, there's all different kinds of things about um i guess you know public policy and and, and we've, we've touched on a little bit already but yeah there's all different kinds of if i might say sort of research agendas mm. um possible lines of thought that are in the book and as a way of concluding it, it, it strikes me as an interesting question as to whether you're going to be kind of pursuing more of these research agendas or um you know do you sort of feel like you've if I might say, given enough to the <laughs> So I hope that people take this theory of the good glow. We've had the warm glow in charity studies, which is a James Andreoni theory that says that one of the reasons people give um, is because it gives them a warm glow. It gives them a good feeling inside. And so, and that's been a well-used theory. And so I hope people take this model of one of the reasons people give is because it gives them the good glow, because they look good um, or it, they can use it as a, as a way of reputation building to others. And I hope people take that and apply it to other things. Um, the book being released during a lockdown, I think, means that it's probably had uh, maybe less impact or less um, involvement in people's reading lists and ideas than it, than it has. But hopefully that will grow in recent time, in, in, in the future. The one thing that I am working on that is, that is related to this is actually a, a bit darker. And it's uh, work on the charity of Jimmy Savile. Uh, Jimmy Savile, the um, radio DJ and television personality who, after his death, was revealed to be actually one of Britain's um, worst paedophiles and a, a, a horrific story of abuse that he left behind him. But Savile during his life was also one of Britain's most famous philanthropists and charity fundraisers. I think he raised over 40 million pounds for good causes during his life, which probably uh, indicates about 100 million pounds in, in today's money, if you account for inflation. And I'm interested in how Savile used charity throughout his career as a way to hide his abuse and how lots of people, when they started questioning him, well thought, but this guy's raising money for a children's hospital or he's running five marathons this year or he's um, trying to bring peace to Northern Ireland. How can he possibly be guilty of all these things that people have said about him? So that's something that I'm trying to unpick. And that does have a public policy focus because he was tasked by the Thatcher government in the 1980s with raising private capital to re rebuild the um, Stoke Mandeville Spinal Injuries um, Hospital. So there's a real, there is a real link between the politics of charity, the personalities that we get involved in charity, and the fact that charity enables you to get away with things, um, perhaps, that I think we have been reticent to research so far. So that's what I'm working on next.